0: Hi, everyone. Before we jump into this episode, some feedback from our last episode titled African Languages versus the Internet. We asked you to send through some of your thoughts and ideas on how we can improve, and the response so far has been great. You asked us to include some more links to the resources we mentioned throughout the show information on how to connect with us and our guests, and even shared some tips on how to help us improve the sound and editing quality. This feedback is extremely valuable, and we welcome any and all thoughts that can help us keep getting better. So keep it coming. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating and review right here in your podcast app. That's it for the housekeeping. Let's get into it. Money is quite a curious thing, don't you think? In so many ways it's physical, you can see it, you can touch it, but in so many ways it's also imaginary. This complex beast made up of our collective imagination. What comes to mind for you when I say money or finance? Maybe words like bank, credit card, insurance, ooh, what about return on investment? If this was a bad game of trivia, you could probably show off a bit and shoot through a long list of financial jargon. No matter how much you know, however, I'm sure we can agree it's all very confusing. Did you ever wonder how it got so complicated? Can we maybe take it back to basics for a minute? As children, it doesn't take long for us to become aware of the role money plays in our lives. It's a simple equation. Those who have more of it have a better time navigating through life. In this episode, I want to explore the relationship between money and technology. Now, I'm no finance professional. I have no superior financial wizardry to boast about. But I know I like money. I use it every day. And I know I like technology. I use that every day too. So why not learn a little bit about what has happened in our turbulent past as humans to bring us to the point where technology and finance are two of the most sought after professions in the world. But where do
1: we even start? I couldn't quite figure that out on my own. Look, the the world is complicated. There's lots of different avenues you can go down. But I sort of try and do two things when I think about finance and investing. It's follow the money is one thing. And then try and understand the supply chain. How do you start from one point and sort of cascade or waterfall down right to the bottom?
0: That is Nishlin Govender. If you've listened to some of our other episodes in the Impact Co. network, you might recognize him from a show we do called Impact Co. Finance. Nish is a career finance professional currently working at a wealth management firm in Cape Town, South Africa. He helped me paint a mental picture of what finance is as a whole. And towards the end of our discussion, he gave a really good book recommendation for some bedside reading.
1: I tend to read a lot. So I wanted to sort of share one book that sort of matched the topic that we were discussing today. And the one book I'd recommend to your listeners is called The the Bitcoin Standard. Um, it's, It's called The Bitcoin Standard, yes. But the first part of the book spends a lot of time talking about how we got to where we are in terms of money, how, uh, how we chose the money system that we have, how does it work? And I think if you read that first part of the book, at least even outside the Bitcoin part, it really starts to help you shape the finance world and how the link from banks to payment facilitators to retailers and everything else kind of matches together.
0: Now, I know Bitcoin is something of a trigger word these days. So let's take Nish's advice and ignore that part of the book for the time being. The book he recommends is supposed to explain to us what finance looks like and how we landed up with a system that exists today. If you're listening to this episode, you're in luck because I'm going to attempt to summarize many thousands of years of money history for you right now in about five minutes. DJ Lee, drop the beat. First off, let's try to define money as a concept. Let's imagine that we're trying to invent a new type of money for all of mankind to use together. For this thing we are considering to work, it needs to fulfill three functions. First, it needs to be a medium of exchange. This would allow us to make trades without the need to negotiate and barter for each exchange we wanted to make. Think of it like a token that is widely accepted where you live and allows your marketplaces to be more efficient. Second, it needs to be a unit of account. This means that we can assign value to different things using the same terminology. In other words, instead of saying that one bag of grain is equal to 50 apples, which is also equal to 10 cans of Coke, we can just say the Coke costs 20 rand, And the apples cost 40 rand. Lastly, the choice of money would need to prove to be a good store of value. Something that's a good store of value can easily be sold because someone is always willing to buy it. It can be easily divided up, transported, and over time, it proves it can hold value into the future. This means that you can use it to store wealth. But those are the criteria for our new money. Three things. It needs to be a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. So far, so good. We've seen something like gold work well for a long time because you can make gold coins that you can divide up and trade with. And gold does a good job of holding value over time too. There is one more idea that we'll need to consider before adopting our new form of money. And that idea is the hardness of the money. The hardness of money describes how easy or difficult it is to make more of this money. How easily can it be produced? If the money is hard, then it will be more difficult to increase its supply. We look at how much of it we have available at our disposal, and we compare that to how much we're producing. Ideally, for this new money of ours to work well, we would want there to be a limited amount of this money being produced, because then there would be fewer overall, which would make them worth more. Throughout human history, we have jumped from one form of money to the next. The force we've just described in terms of the hardness of money is usually one of the things that triggers a change from one form of currency to the next. As early back as 3000 BC, people used seashells as a major currency in many parts of the world. But over time, we got better at building boats and navigating the ocean and the increased supply made them lose value. Things like cattle and salt were also popular stores of wealth, but cattle couldn't be easily divided up and both were difficult to transport over long distances. This happened right through the ancient civilizations and medieval periods, which came to an end between the 14 and 1500s. Around this time, modern colonialism as we see it today started to appear. Your ability to fight wars as a community and as a nation is what determined your worth in this time. Because of this, people had to become better at war and people looked to science and technology to give their armies the edge over their enemies. As we entered the age of discovery and enlightenment that started around 1500, our technology advancements allowed us to discover many properties of metals and soon monetary metals started forming part of the global currency things like copper gold and silver started to prove useful for trade and infrastructure soon after this paper money started to emerge to help us address a challenge of having to transport these metals everywhere we go at the time The paper was nothing more than a simple receipt that confirmed ownership. The combination of paper money and precious metals was used through most of the 1600s and 1700s, and this led us to the gold standard of the 1800s. The gold standard meant that the paper money we used directly represented the amount of gold that was stored in our vaults. Over time, we built more financial instruments using this combination, But some of their problems became too hard to ignore. Firstly, with monetary metals, it became difficult to predict supply and demand fluctuations. This was made even harder by the people that would dilute the metal content with other less valuable metals or create counterfeits. The other major issue with our use of the gold standard was that it caused an enormous amount of power and influence to be centralized in banks and government. If they wanted to control the supply of money into the system or even print more paper money than the gold they had in store, they could do that. And with no surprise to anyone, that's exactly what they did. Sometimes it was done for a good purpose, like providing relief when disaster struck. But things like war were especially expensive, so bankrolling these activities was a challenge. With all this in mind, eventually the world moved off the gold standard and adopted a new form of currency called fiat money. This is the system we still use today fiat money is the money that is mandated and issued by the government of a country governments decided to adopt the system because it gave them more flexibility to address goals that were of a national interest the important thing with fiat money is that the value of the currency is heavily dependent on the reputation of the authority that's issue- issuing it at the end of the day It comes down to how much trust and faith people everywhere have in a government and how much potential they see they have for growth in the future. Naturally, while there were many economic indicators that would go into this, politics would always play a role. It's quite interesting to me because can you imagine fiat currencies before the internet existed? There are people around today who can tell us about it firsthand. In a world where reputation determined value and where information availability was extremely low, whoever controlled the flow of information was in an extremely powerful position to hide their true reputation. Consider this for a moment. In 1980, the exchange rate between the US dollar and the South African rand was one to one. Yes, one U.S. dollar was equal to one South African rand. There was already news and information being shared all over the world because telephones and newspapers had been around for over a century. Even the television had been around for almost 50 years. But the apartheid government went to extreme lengths to ensure the atrocities they committed throughout the country were not discovered by the global public. They even tried to stop information from reaching the native population. They went as far as to reject requests to install television infrastructure in the country because they wouldn't be able to effectively censor what flowed through to people's screens. And these requests came from other privileged people in 1980s in South Africa that traveled the world and had seen them in action. They were scared that the native black population would see interracial mixing taking place in other parts of the world and get too many bright ideas. They tried to fill the gap with a radio broadcast entertainment, which they could have a closer watch over. But the thing with communication is that trying to prevent others from using it cuts you off as well. Eventually, the government succumbed to the pressure and adopted the television almost 10 years after their global peers, despite being considered a global superpower at this point. The regime was reaching its end because more information came to the attention of the global public and the massive issues facing the country were thrown out into the courtyard for all to see. Okay, so now we have the history of money all laid out we'll let that information settle in the back of our minds while we switch lands. One of the things we try to demonstrate on this show is how solving problems that are unique to Africa and the developing world can disrupt the status quo on a global level. How exactly would this play out in the financial world? Well, we're now reaching the point in history where the internet is starting to open up a world of possibilities to many people. And then It's now the 1990s, and what laboratories and factories did to precious minerals in the earth is what the internet was now doing to stories and information in our minds. Before the internet came along, the only way you could access anything outside of your knowledge base was to get your hands on a newspaper, a magazine, maybe visit a local library, and if you were lucky enough, you had access to TV and radio stations. All of these things were owned and moderated by small groups of people who had the power to curate and distribute information as they desired. The entire business model of journalism is primarily built on this reality. It was inevitable that monopolies would take over, but the demand for information far exceeded the supply, especially in much of Africa, where investment in knowledge creation was often neglected. But the internet was beginning to eat away at the monopoly structure as more people became empowered to share their insights with others and access information that was more relevant to them. The tech was still trying to catch up. Computers in the 1990s were still really boring and complicated with no way for ordinary people to interact with them so most people didn't pay them much attention. As the co-founder of Wired magazine and best-selling author, Kevin Kelly, described in an interview, it wasn't until we married the telephone to the computer that they became interesting to the world. He went on to say that at this point, they became a communications device and communication is sort of the foundation of culture. I'm inclined to agree with Kevin Kelly here, because if communication is the foundation of culture, nowhere is that more evident than on the African continent. African culture is extremely rich and nuanced, and Africans are storytellers by nature. This is what has kept its people so resilient. So when these powerful long-distance devices started to get cheaper and more popular, they spread across the globe faster than the existing monopoly powers could control. At this point, as we head into the mid-2000s, Africa's reality is this. The formal economy operates purely within the few established banks and authorities present but it only serves a small portion of the total economic activity. The informal economy, on the other hand, made up a much larger proportion. And this is where people had to manage and safeguard as much of their physical cash and assets as they could. The repercussions were that you became vulnerable to violence and exploitation because most people had no outside help. Despite this trade activity still grew, but Pressure was building, and that pressure would lead to a breakthrough. It turns out that in order to complete a financial transaction, you basically just need to confirm that someone is who they say they are, and they have what they say they have. But the steps to do that within the existing system of physical banks and bank cards was complicated and taxing enough to turn most people away. But a large enough group of people in Africa now had mobile phones that could access basic communication networks. The networks couldn't handle massive data types like images and videos, so telecom companies tried to simplify banking procedures down to a few steps. This also made it easier to translate the process into native languages, which could bring many more people into the fold. In reality, people already knew how to use money, and understood most financial concepts. Without the helps of banks and formal institutions, communities, big and small, found ways to collaborate and build together. In South Africa, one good example is the stockfill, a group saving technique where members pool as much of their resources as they can afford to and collectively agree on a constitutional structure that determines how that money will be used to benefit the members. All that Africans really needed was a way to accumulate their money safely and the ability to pay people easily. And so, with all these converging forces, mobile money was born. In 2007, Kenya became the first country in the world to successfully combine technology and money in a way the world was yet to see. For the first time, anyone who owned a mobile phone, regardless of how new or old, and a registered SIM card could access many of the same services you would find at a traditional bank a bank account, a pay point, and even bank loans, all in the palm of your hand. This concept took off like wildfire. Across the continent, mobile money kiosks started popping up on almost every street corner and even deep into the rural areas. Many were no bigger than the red telephone booths that the UK is famous for. You only needed one person to operate a single booth. Sitting behind the counter, they act as a human ATM that accepts deposits of cash payments and loads that money onto a user's account, or the same in reverse to allow for withdrawals. All this was tracked using their cell phone number, which registers the transaction. The merchant who collects the money will periodically take cash to the respective drop-off points and collect their fee. Interestingly, a lot of the time, there isn't even a need for formal security standing guard over the kiosk. Merchants will often use simple lockboxes instead of heavy-duty safes. This tells me one thing. Shared interest creates common safety. This network of human ATMs helped everyone. Period. Here is how Nish describes some of the trends emerging in the global financial world during this time as we head into the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s and beyond.
1: I think when the internet revolution kind of started in the 1990s leading up to the early 2000s, I think we saw a number of players in the different areas of, of finance and banking and retail The problem we had was when the dot-com bubble happened, so 2000, 2001, 2002, a lot of companies got shaken out quite dramatically, and investment in companies that benefited from the internet actually went to very selective winners. So the likes of Microsoft and Apple and Google started to be sort of the dominant technology company that started to sort of move into different areas. So now you've got Amazon talking about going into healthcare, and Google having now infiltrated Android, which was never their core business before. And like you said, Apple sort of going into the payment facilitation side with JP Morgan, uh, even though they are using the payment facilitators still. um, You've seen this sort of monopoly happen, where big tech companies have just become bigger and bigger. and they sort of diversified their portfolios. But for me, that's never the, the right way to go about it. I'd rather have more competition, more companies doing the same service. And that competition should reduce prices and make things more efficient for customers. As of the sort of 2010s, we've seen that shift start to go the other way again in an important way, where the dominant players are still there, but we're starting to see new entrants in certain areas start to do well. Um, so Amazon might have been dominating in terms of retail, but we've had Alibaba come along quite nicely. Uh, there's a company called Mercado Libre that operates out in South America and other parts of the world that's done really well. Shopify is also con- uh, is competing directly with Amazon. On the payment facilitation side, I think that's where we've had the most new entrants recently, well, over the last 10 years, actually. On the head of that last point, it's problems that needed to be solved. I think we had, and when I say we, I'm talking about your emerging market nations, had problems that needed to be solved that the West and the developed markets didn't have. And I truly believe through technological innovation that had nothing to do with the West, we created really good and solid products that the West is now starting to copy. I talked about Cash App and Venmo. Both of those appeared only in sort of 2009 and 2013. Whereas MPesa started in 2007 in Kenya via Safaricom Vodafone. So we started to solve our own problems. And the problem that, that occurred in Africa was that there was just too many people that were unbanked. And those people couldn't become banked. They just didn't have access to a branch. They didn't have access to banking facilities. They didn't want to pay for exorbitant bank fees. Um, so we needed an alternate solution. And I think the Safari, Vodacom, Vodafone, Nick Hughes realized that they needed some sort of payments infrastructure that was different. They realized that everybody owned a cell phone. A cell phone could be thought of as an account or an identification number. And if you had cash, can we set up this account linked to your phone? You came to our agents that were distributed all over in different areas, gave money to that agent, he would then sort of credit your account Your M Pesa account would then have money in it, and that could be transferred between other M Pesa clients. And that could be between me and you, it could be between me and a small business owner, it could be business to business. And it sort of takes away the need for banks completely. Sure, I, I can go to an ATM and sort of withdraw that cash, but I can also fully use it inside the Impesa ecosystem. And if you think about what Venmo and Cash App are in America now, they're exactly the same as Impesa. You know, you can go to a CVS in America, deposit money into your Venmo account. It's exactly the same. Uh, while that was happening here in Africa in in India, they were kind of trying to do the same thing. There was a United Payments Interface, UPI, that was basically structured by a non-government organization linked to the Reserve Bank in India that was effectively making the same kind of developments where you could sort of deposit money into account or link multiple of your bank accounts to one account that could then be facilitated with small business owners or customers. Um, A little bit later to the game was China with uh, Alibaba's Alipay and Tencent's WeChat and WePay. Um, So all of these emerging markets realized that they had a problem and solved it with really good technological innovation.
0: This episode touches on many concepts. Information is great. Context is great. But what are we supposed to take away from all this? For me, the key takeaway is this. If you don't already know, now you do. Information and ideas are to our 21st century society, as precious metals were to the society of the industrial revolution in the 1700s. Just like precious metals, we've been aware of this valuable resource for a big part of human history, but we've mostly been limited in our ability to harness its true potential. Eventually, our technology got better, and we reached a tipping point that led us to unlock a world of possibilities that worked like magic. The same thing is happening right now. One key difference is, in this information age, the precious resource isn't something we dig out of the ground. We make it ourselves. Its supply is only limited by the limitations we place on our creativity. When you follow the supply chain back to its source, you start to understand why we've managed to stick around for as long as we have, despite our many missteps. Our creativity convinces us to change. And look, I can empathize with people who don't share my enthusiasm. Change is scary and it hurts. The reality is that every powerful discovery we create will create equally as powerful problems. Where my optimism stems from is in the belief that our ability to solve problems will continue pushing past the boundaries of our current reality. As Africans, I think it's critical for us to appreciate this so that we can focus our attention and efforts on preserving and growing our creative assets. The creative economy holds a lot of potential for this continent. We can't let this one pass us by. And I believe we won't. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Impact Co. Technology Podcast. If you would like to do your own follow-ups on any of the information shared, you can find reference links to some of the research done, as well as a link to the book that our guest, Mr. Nishlin Govinder, recommended at the start of the show, titled The Bitcoin Standard. Also in the show notes, you will find links to the Impact Co. social media pages where you can reach out to the team directly and see all the exciting projects we're working on. If you enjoy our shows and want to support the work we do, by far the easiest and most impactful way to do that is by giving us a rating and leaving a review right here in your podcast app. It really goes a long way to help us reach more people. That's it for now. Until next time,